Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing but but at some level astounding nature welcome back to the nature podcast this week making an artificial eye and how disc galaxies formed in the early universe i'm nick Howe. and i'm sharmini bundell First up, Darwin once pointed to the human eye as an example of evolution through natural selection that people might find hard to accept. An eye is an incredibly complex organ, but researchers working on artificial vision have managed to craft an eye that mimics our own, complete with a working retina. Reporter Jeff Marsh spoke to the scientists involved to find out more. Because I used to see a lot of sci-fi movies... They have the artificial eyes. So I found this uh, technology is very interesting. My name is Ziyong Fan. I'm a professor working in Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. What's your favorite sci-fi film with an artificial eye? Oh, Star Trek for sure. <laughs> In 2012, we developed some enabling technologies. Then 2016, we started with actual work to fabricate our biomimetic eyes. We have cameras already with incredible resolution. What's so special about the layout of the human eye? Why is that something to aim for? One of the unique features everybody knows that our eyes are spherical shape. So spherical shape makes very easy for the eyeball to move in our eye socket. Of course, inside our eyeball, we have this hemispherical retina. So this hemispherical retina also makes our single eye field of view much bigger than our camera, which uses flat image sensors. And that hemispherical shape, that dome shape of the retina, am I right in thinking that that is what has posed the greatest fabrication challenge for you and your team? Exactly. Even now, it's very difficult to fabricate the sensing devices, circuitry on the hemispherical substrate. It's very difficult. 
So that is one of the biggest challenges we encounter in the very beginning. What are your photosensing nanowires? What are they made of? So these are semiconducting light-sensitive materials. In this work, we use a new material called a perovskite material. Perovskite. Yes, we use a perovskite nanowires. And that's the same material that's used in photovoltaics. That's right. The new type of material for photovoltaic technology. So this material converts the photon into the charges. So these nanowires are light-sensing materials. They are very sensitive to light, and their density is around six times higher density of photoreceptor on the human retina. So they have a higher density for sure. What was the key to managing to embed your photosensor array on that dome shape? I guess the key is、uh, we achieved the integration and the material fabrication in one step. In the past, people have already tried. People work on the nanotechnology. They make small devices. Often, they make material first, then they transfer the material to somewhere else. So they do things in、uh, multiple steps, two steps at least. So what your team did differently was you constructed your dome-shaped retina with the photosensing nanowires in that shape. You didn't start on a flat surface and then try and fold it up. That's right. That's right. That's the key. And so that allowed you to make that array much denser because you didn't have to leave gaps between the photosensors to allow for folding. Right. Right. Another additional、uh, feature、uh, which makes our technology very unique is、uh, our technology is basically electrochemical photo detector, unlike those solid state devices. So it's liquid inside. It's just like our eyeball. We have this liquid inside, so every single sensing pixel they are connected with this liquid. But on the backside, we choose to use the liquid metal wires as artificial nerve fibers to connect with the individual sensing elements because they are very flexible and also highly conductive. On the same principle with our human eye. What could your device see in inverted commas? How did you test that? Well,、uh, in principle, we can achieve、uh, much higher image resolution than human eye. So our human eye, we have a resolution limit. If we look far away, for example, a star, you know, far away from us, it may only project a dot on our retina. The size of the dot, if it's smaller than three micrometer on our retina, then we can't even see it, right? But if we use our nanowires. And the size of this dot created by the star on our retina, if it's one micrometer, then we can see it. Does that mean then that if in the future someone did have these eyes implanted and they looked up at the night sky, that they would see a much richer array of stars? Absolutely, you will see definitely you'll see more stars. But if you don't look at a star, you just look at surroundings, you'll have much. Clear image, and you can see much further distance. So I understand that you put this artificial eye through a series of kind of performance tests. So we test the sensitivity of our artificial retina, so we can measure very weak light, and we also measure the speed, the response speed of our、uh, artificial retina. The response speed is、uh, a little bit more than ten milliseconds. So that is already much faster than human eye. The human eye will be something like a forty millisecond, 
So our artificial retina is four times faster. So we also measure the imaging functionality, the uh, object projecting onto the retina, and we use a computer to acquire the data and reconstruct the object so that we can also demonstrate. So it has a high fidelity. I mean, it sounds like if this ever ended up in a human, that they would have superpowers. That's right. It would be a super eye, basically. Yeah, you could take this technology further and change the materials so that they're sensitive to different parts of the light spectrum, and then, wow, that's a whole new world of, that's a whole new visual world. Exactly. All of, all of a sudden, the whole electromagnetic spectrum is open to us. Ultimately, Zion, what do you suppose this technology will be used for? Is this just going to be a new kind of camera technology or more realistic robot gadget, or do you think that they're going to find their way into our eye sockets? There are two major application scenarios. So one is、uh, help the blind people if they have a illness on the retina, so we can use our artificial retina to replace that. The other one is、uh, humanoid robotics, so their eye also need to look like human eye. We can use our artificial eye to replace those eyes made by flat technologies. I suppose another whole challenge, which you know your team have not directly addressed here, would be how you could interface such a technology with the human brain. That's that's a whole other story. Yes, I'm looking for collaborators working on biomedical research to modify our system. Uh, for example, to use more biocompatible materials. Do you think that you're enjoying Star Trek has actually led to this discovery? Definitely, definitely. You know, in my research, I had a lot of crazy ideas from the sci-fi movies. So this is just one of them. <laughs> That was Ziyang Fan from Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. If you want to find out more about artificial eyes, then you can find Ziyang's paper over in the show notes. In a bit, we'll be hearing about the earliest detected disk galaxy. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. The bioluminescent prey of southern elephant seals have a trick up their sleeves when they're being hunted—a dazzling flash. By fitting seven seals with light, movement, and location sensors, a team of researchers have discovered that some of the bioluminescent creatures, such as squid and lanternfish, that the seals feed on, dazzle their attackers with a burst of light. Seals pursuing flashing prey took longer hunting compared to those capturing non-flashing targets, suggesting that bedazzlement is a good defense mechanism. However, one of the seals seems to have wised up to this and devised a trick of its own, subtly twitching its head to cause prey to trigger their flash early and reveal themselves in the darkness. Read the rest of that dazzling discovery over at the Journal of Experimental Biology. Blind people can now see letters if the right part of their brain receives precise electric jolts. People who were sighted before becoming blind typically have damage to their eyes or optic nerve, but not to the visual cortex, the region of the brain that processes visual information. In fact, 
electrically stimulating the visual cortex triggers flashes of light that could allow the brain to create a recognisable picture, but the image is often shapeless. But researchers from the US have harnessed a new technique, using an approach similar to tracing a shape on the palm of the hand, but instead transmitting short bursts of electricity in a sequence that mimics the shape of letters. In trials, two individuals who had lost their sight could correctly identify 80% of the letters they were shown, and the researchers think the approach could also be used to trace the outlines of common objects such as houses or cars. Trace out the rest of that research in full at Cell. Next up, there are two main theories about how disk galaxies form. Now, some new observations are providing clues about how this would have happened in the very early universe. A long time ago, a galaxy formed far, far away. It looked kind of similar to our own Milky Way. It had lots of gas and was a slowly spinning disk. But how do disk galaxies like this form? So there's two ways that galaxies are forming. This is astrophysicist Marcel Nailerman. So one way is that gas accretes onto these systems, so gas from outside falls onto the galaxy and then gets really heated as hot as possible and then they slowly falls into the central region and then form stars and also the, the actual galaxy itself that we can see. Or in the second way is that maybe this gas still falls in from outside but doesn't get heated as much, it stays cold and then falls directly onto the galaxy. The difference between them is that one will take a lot longer. If gas falls in and gets heated, it takes a long time, so if you can find a galaxy very early on, you might be able to rule that model out. These two methods of disk galaxy formation, slowly with hot gas or a quicker accumulation of cold gas, are both thought to occur in the universe. But to work out which method was occurring when, researchers have to look back in time. Simulations have suggested that the cold gas method could have been the dominant mode of disk galaxy formation in the early universe. To confirm this, researchers need to peer back around 12 billion years, by looking at something 12 billion light years away, and not only detect it, but determine it's a disk galaxy too. You need the best telescopes in the world. This week in Nature, Marcel has put one of the top telescopes to use. In stunning resolution and detail, he's observed a disk galaxy that formed only 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang. Universe-wise, that is not a long time, making this the earliest detected disk galaxy so far. The fact that it must have formed so quickly is good evidence for the cold method of galaxy formation. I was initially very surprised that there was a disk at this epoch. This is Alfred Tiley, an astronomer who wasn't associated with Marcel's study. From an observational perspective, everything that we have seen so far, including imaging from the Hubble Space Telescope, studies with our best instrumentation on the ESO Very Large Telescope, all of that was telling us that disks in galaxies start to emerge around 4 billion years after the Big Bang. So to see evidence for a disk in a galaxy only one and a half billion years after the Big Bang, that was surprising to me. However, 
it, it kind of is in line with theoretical expectations that cold mode accretion should dominate in the early universe. I think it's this very exciting result. Alfred was particularly impressed with how well this early disk galaxy was able to be observed. It's shown that it's technically possible to not only detect this light that's emitted from the gas in galaxies only one and a half billion years after the Big Bang, but also to detect it with sufficient sensitivity and spatial resolution to, to really do a proper study of its, of its properties. Whilst Alfred does think this newly observed galaxy is good evidence for the cold method of formation being dominant in the early universe, there are some other possibilities of how it could have formed, such as two non-disc galaxies colliding. So Alfred would like to see more examples of disc galaxies from 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang. And then you really start to get a clearer picture of, okay, is this systematic across all galaxies at that time? Or is their galaxy an outlier from the rest of the galaxy population at that time? Marcel agrees, and his next steps are to try and locate more early disk galaxies. We found one, so that's a good start, but we definitely need more to confirm that this is a common way of forming galaxies. But we have good reason to believe that this is more common than we thought it was going to be. So we found a galaxy that was pretty normal. It was not, nothing special about this galaxy when you look at it. So the fact that we found it in this kind of way that we selected a normal kind of galaxy that you know doesn't stick out in any kind of possible way uh, gives us a good feeling that this is probably a very normal way of forming galaxies. Whether or not this cold method of formation was indeed common throughout the early universe remains to be seen. But both Alfred and Marcel think this is a key first step and shows that observations like this are possible. And that's something that's going to be really exciting for the astronomy community. We'll be keen to peer back into the early universe. In a way, given that it's only one galaxy, that's even more exciting because I think this was going to push people to try and construct large samples of galaxies at a similar epoch. And so I think it's, in terms of what it's going to do for uh, astronomies, I think it's going to really focus the attention of, of astronomers on on galaxy evolution and galaxy formation at a much earlier epoch than has been possible with the previous generation of telescopes and instrumentation. That was Alfred Tiley from the University of Western Australia. You also heard from Marcel Nehlemann from the Max Planck Institute in Germany. You can check out Marcel's paper over in the show notes, where you'll also find a link to a News & Views article written by Alfred. Last up, it's time for a quick chat about some other non-corona science stories out there. Nick and I have been browsing the Nature Briefing for the past few weeks. That's Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. And Nick, what do you want to share this time? So I've been looking into a new preventative treatment for HIV. So at the moment, if you are at high risk of getting HIV, what you will do is you will take a combination of two drugs every day. But that's really hard to stick to and it can mean that you leave yourself vulnerable if you forget or you miss a dose or something like that. And so what this is, is it's an injection that you would take once every two months and that would be enough to protect you from the virus. Wow, going from yeah once a day to once every two months would be a massive lifestyle change. And, and what kind of people is this going to benefit? 
Well, I guess it would benefit those people who are most at risk from HIV. So that might be sex workers. It might be people in relationships with people who are HIV positive, who, you know, they don't want to run the risk. And there are certain groups of individuals, such as men who have sex with men, that are at higher risk than other groups. So those would be the type of people that it would be for. But as you say, it would be really great to be able to switch from taking two things once a day to something every couple of months. It would be much easier to stick to. And that's the hope of the researchers. And so this is something that they're still uh, trialling, but is looking hopeful. Yeah, so this is still in clinical trials. And I must say, it hasn't been peer reviewed as of yet. And also the trial has been a bit disrupted by the coronavirus outbreak. But it looks good from what they've shown so far. And the incidence of HIV in the volunteers is the same as those people taking the current treatment, which is the drugs. And so it looks like it could be a good potential treatment. Brilliant. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the results of those trials then. My story this week is about bacteria. Woo! Love the bacteria. Um, And it's about bacteria that are apparently hanging out in rocks all over the place, well, under the surface of the oceans, deep within the oceans, in the rock, um, in the Earth's crust, somewhere, you know, there's no light, there's really barely any food, and you really wouldn't be expecting to find life. Those bacteria, they seem to just get everywhere, don't they? I, I swear, like, there is no place that they can't exist. But I do wonder, as you said, there's no light, there's no food. What exactly are these bacteria living on? Well, it's not obviously completely unknown that creatures can exist without sunlight and photosynthesis. So, of course, deep sea vents are a little uh, fountain of life um, deep below the surface of the ocean. And some of the bacteria in, in rocks under the oceans could be sort of getting food that sort of slowly makes its way through. Another possibility is some of them might be getting food from, well, essentially radioactivity in the rocks, providing that energy that they, they're able to convert into a power source. Even with sort of like radioactivity uh, and things like that, there there can't be a lot of energy down there for them to use. So what exactly are they doing? Well, a lot of them seem to be living and and growing just extremely slowly. So one of the researchers in this Quantum Magazine article talks about them maybe being a single cell living for a hundred or a thousand years before dividing, before reproducing. Um, So potentially a completely different rate of life than us sort of surface folks would ever be able to comprehend. Um, And then studying them might actually be really interesting because if these bacteria can survive with just rock and water, that might give us clues about where to look for life on other planets and what sort of life that could be. Well, I guess slow and steady really does win the race then. Thanks for that, Shamini. And listeners, if you'd like more short snippets of science just like that we discussed, but instead to your email inbox, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, along with links to the articles that we discussed. That's all for this week. If you want to get into contact with us, then you can find us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if you are more email inclined, then we've got you covered too. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Nick Al. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 